Well, we're just going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 today. But there's something something in this where similarities and differences are important. Sometimes it's important the difference, to notice the differences, and sometimes it's important to notice the similarities. Maybe you've noticed it's often hard to know which is more important, though. When I was study, studying as an undergraduate, comparative religion, we were looking at all the religions in the world and trying to define what united them together. And so, as a result, we ended up tending to look for the similarities. But in that discipline, the attempt to find the similarities ended up ended up that the things that made the religious belief ended up being pushed aside because we looked more at the similarities than we looked at the differences. Whereas within religions, actually, it's what makes each different that makes each distinctive. It's an important thing to think about when we're thinking about talking to other people who might have different beliefs to ourselves. There might be some things where we have common ground, and that's wonderful, but actually what is really important is what is different and to understand how different they are. But there are times when similarities are truly more significant than the differences. Um, at the moment, there's a lot of rugby on television, and when you watch a game of top-class rugby, each player of the team might come from a different background. They, increasingly, it's the case that the team will be made up from different countries, <laughs> speaking different languages. But when they're on the pitch, they all wear the same shirt. They're different languages, they're different skin types, they're different moral codes even. On the pitch, they're on the same team. And the differences are outweighed by the similarities. Well, in the first century, there really was a very big difference, a very big division between people. On the one hand, there were the Jewish people, and on the other hand, there was the Gentiles. And in the New Testament, the writers give us a bit of an introduction into the world of this division. Mark, apparently writing to a group that was predominantly Gentile and who had not much contact with Jews, he has to tell them things like he says in chapter 7, verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they've given their hands a ceremonial washing according to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they have to observe other traditions, such as washing cups and pitchers and kettles. Mark says that in his account of Jesus' life, so that people who are not Jewish can say, oh, that's odd, how bizarre, that's, that's weird, but it's important that I know that. John, when he's writing Jesus' biography, he says something similar when he's talking about the water that was turned into wine. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says to his audience, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. And when Jesus met a non-Jewish woman, even worse in their eyes, a Samaritan woman, John tells us about her response to Jesus. He says, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then he says in brackets, For Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. The thing is, friends, that this difference between Jew and Gentile was not just a normal difference, an ordinary difference like 
we have differences in cultures. No, this is a difference that God himself initiated. It's not just that the Jewish people had somehow got it in their heads they were better as a nationality. It was just not just like a football team or a rugby team that wore different jerseys and they attached a value to that. No, this difference between Jew and Gentile was a difference that God had himself created. And while it might have been misused and misunderstood in any number of ways by the Jewish people, the division itself was made by God. God really had chosen Abraham, an actual man in history, and had chosen this man and the rest of his family and made them special. And his family was blessed by God in a way that no other family was blessed. And that family became a nation and was cared for and rescued by God, and that was special. This people, this nation that became known as the Jews, were God's special people. The people who alone in the world God had set apart to be his. The people who alone in the world God had spoken to. The people who alone in the world had been given God's holy law, his revealed will for how they should live. And while they were to treat those who lived among them who weren't Jewish well, they were still known as aliens among them. And Jesus himself lived and thought that way as he approached the cross, as the Old Testament, as the Old Covenant was still going to be fulfilled by his death and resurrection. Actually, you notice this in one of the most uncomfortable bits of the Gospels you might ever read. Jesus' encounter with a woman from Syria, Phoenicia. If you turned back to Mark chapter 7, if you had your Bible here with you, you might, you might even want to do that. Look back at Mark chapter 7, verse 24. I realise we're taking a long time to get to Ephesians, but there's a reason to it, for it. Mark 7, verse 24, starts with, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he couldn't keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive out the demon from her daughter. First let the children eat all what they want, he told her for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. Now I wonder, did any of you feel uncomfortable hearing Jesus speak to a needy woman like that? I mean, I, I know I still do. And the reason I do, I think, is for three reasons. <laughs> it's because, first of all, we live in our age where our culture has been so affected by the passage we're about to read from Ephesians that we can't not think in that way. Second, I was raised to be polite to people and particularly to women. Ooh. Um, uh and it just doesn't seem right, particularly from the Jesus I thought I knew. And third, I realise I'm not Jewish. And so in that story, 
I'm with the Syrio-Phoenician woman. And so, friends, are most, if not all of us. If you do have Jewish heritage, hang on, there's an important bit in this passage for you as well. But Jesus, as he was speaking, he was actually speaking the truth. God, the almighty creator himself, had declared that the Jewish people were his special people. That they had an inheritance that they would receive, and that inheritance was the inheritance of the whole earth. That God's blessing was on his chosen people, and others were standing outside of that blessing. They might be able to have a taste of the blessing by living among God's chosen people, but to have the full blessing, how on earth could that happen? It was all about who your parents were. And if your parents were Jewish, then you had it. If your parents weren't Jewish, you didn't have the inheritance. Now, I've spent some time on this because I think this worldview is so far from ours that we just don't get it. The division between Jew and Gentile was not random prejudice. It was a division of humanity instituted by God. And Paul, Jewish to his core, a passionate, zealous Jew, a scholar of the Old Testament, here is writing to a group of people who seem to be mainly Gentile, like us. A group of people who've come to believe that a Jew, a man named Yeshua, Jesus, is actually the most important person in all of history, a Jewish man executed by Roman rulers in Jerusalem according to the wishes of the, Rome, of the Jewish authorities. The most significant man who ever existed, who did not just die but who rose again and is the great king and lord of all things, the one at whose feet all creation bows. And Paul's just been praying that they would come to know this Jesus better and bring glory to him. And Paul has just been praying that they would, verse 17, I keep asking that the God and God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And the great thing about Paul is that after he prays this, he goes on to provide the means by which God achieves this. Paul writes of the amazing thing that Jesus has done so that we, people like me, might know him and know him better. And particularly, us Gentiles, let's listen to what this Jewish man has to say. Why we need a rescue. Verses 1 to 3. As for you, Paul writes, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, did you notice the repetition of the word you? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions of sin and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. And you see how it's contrasted with the us and the we in the following verse. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. And then, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And to make sure you don't think I'm making this up um, uh, about who all the us and them is and who the you and we are, look down to verse 11 where it's made clear. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. The you, the Gentiles, the people like me, 
defined by what we have not received, defined by circumcision not being part of our culture, by not being the inheritors of the promises of God to Abraham, not the recipients of the law and the writings and the prophets, not the ones who were set apart for God, not God's holy ones by our birth. Look back at verse 1 and see what Paul the Jew has to say to us who are Gentiles. And he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Friends, the message that Paul brought and that through his letter he is bringing to us is that we were dead. You Gentiles were dead. Why? Verse 1, in your transgressions and sins. In your rebellion against God, you were like the rest of the world. Verse 2, not following God, but following the one who's opposed to God, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's the devil. And we used to follow his leadership the one who works among those who continually disobey God. Friends, have you ever seen those medical dramas and the times when that group of people are working desperately to save a person on a trolley? One person heaving at the person's chest, performing CPR, and then they say clear and they use the defibrillators and they, they squeeze the respiration bag and the person who's senior in the room makes the call. It's too late, they're gone, and they declare the time of death. Friends, Paul says here that we Gentiles are declared dead on the table. Not dying, but dead. And, Gentile friends, there is nothing a corpse can do to bring themselves back to life. And Paul writes here that the coroner's report finds the cause of death to be transgressions and sins. These are words that we understand well enough, don't we? Even if we don't use them very much in everyday conversation. I mean, they're symptoms, really. Uh, oh, sorry, they're synonyms, really. A transgression, it's when you cross the line. It's actually a word that indicates uh, falling by the side someone who doesn't reach the objective that's set, like a runner who fails to reach the finish line. That's a transgression. A sin, well, the best definition I've ever heard of sin is someone who uh, was given to me by a seven-year-old boy. Uh, Shove off, God. I'm in charge. No to your rules. It's the attitude toward God of a rebellious child insisting on rebellious self-rule even if it's bad for us. And the wages paid to the one insisting on rebellion against the almighty creator of the universe is death. We get paid what we're due. And so we were dead. And the bizarre thing in this passage is that it uses the past tense. Did you see that there? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I mean, how on earth can a corpse be anything but dead? How can our death be spoken of in the past tense? 
Well, before he gets to that, Paul says something equally radical. Because he turns to himself and his fellow Jews. And rather than finding the differences that have always defined them from the Gentiles, he finds himself and his countrymen to be in exactly the same situation. Look at verse 3. All of us, all of us Jews, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. Did you notice how inclusive Paul is in his language? Us also lived among, like the rest... Now, this might be a wonderful reconciliation between a, a once radically defined humanity. The two finally are united, except that where we find this unity, I mean, for Paul, having pr proclaimed the Gentiles dead, he turns to himself and his fellow Jews, and he says that they are not separate, but they are just like the rest of the world. They are objects of God's wrath. Notice, friends, how he's including himself in that statement. This is not Paul, the special one who is excluded from God's judgment. No, this is Paul, the Jew, finding himself like all the Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles united all together as objects of God's anger because of our rebellion against him. Recently, I saw an interview responding to the accusation of what used to be called the new atheists, people like Dawkins and that type of thing. And the accusation was that religion was responsible for so many atrocities of history. And a response that Christians have often given at that point was that in the previous century, it was actually the atheists who had committed the worst atrocities. Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Hitler, Stalin. But this interview was different in that the Christian didn't respond that way. Rather than responding to the accusation being pointing back at the person say, well, you did too, and it was worse, the person instead said, actually, yeah, you're right. And what unifies the people who committed those atrocities was that they were human. Humanity fails to rule the world. Humanity fails to rule society. As humans, we fail to rule even ourselves, and our failure is what unifies us. Our failure is that together, whether we're Jewish or Gentile, employed, unemployed, millionaire or on benefits, Protestant, Catholic, Unionist, Nationalist, all of those different divisions that come between the world, We are, by nature, objects of wrath. And if we don't get that, then we must begin to understand that before we will understand anything about the message of the gospel. We won't understand who Jesus is until we first understand that. If you're Gentile, you're dead in your sin. If you're Jewish, you're an object of wrath, bound together in the most horrible way you can imagine. But Paul here is talking to Christians, like I think all of us on this call. People who have taken Jesus as their king, and he's reminding them together that what they were and what we were 
How can our death in any way be spoken of in the past tense as if it's no longer an issue? How can being an object of wrath, an object of God's anger, no longer hold any terror for us? Well, it's only because of what we find in verses 4 to 6. It can only be because there is a loving God who rescues us and gives us a new unity. The merciful, loving God rescues and unites us in life. That's what verses 4 to 6 are about. But because of his great love for us, you see it there? God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm in, in Christ Jesus. You notice, friends, it's all about God and what he's done. Do you see the, the big but there? But, but because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Oh, Christian friends, savour those words. Look at them. Let them take over your eyes. Let them, let them burn into your hearts and into your minds. Hear them again and let your heart jump for joy. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Who did it? God, who is rich in mercy. Why did he do it? Verse 5, oh, verse 4, sorry. Because of his great love for us. We who were objects of his wrath because of our rebellion, because of our treason, by telling God to shove off, we'll run the world without you. We don't care that you're the almighty God and creator. You can just shove away. We who have done that, oh, how, how can you believe it? We, how, un, how beyond understanding this is, we are also the objects of his love. And what did he do? Verse 5, he made us alive with Christ. Paul reminds us of our state when this happened. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. He says it again, and he teaches us some more, and makes us focus, and makes our focus right. Because while he loved us and had mercy on us, it mean, the means by which God does this is really the main focus of God. Verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Yes, friends, we have been raised. And we find that happens because Jesus, God's King, his Christ, he was raised. Jesus died, but you know his death was not for his own rebellion, don't you? Jesus' death was for our rebellion. It was actually our death he died. And as he died our death, when God raised Jesus from the dead, we who put our hope in him, we too are raised. The only hope for our rising is found in the resurrection of the King, Jesus Christ. And 
Jesus is seated in the heavenly realms. That's the domain of God's rule. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, verse 2, is under the authority of this greater ruler. And friends, we who are Christians are seated with Christ in the domain of God's rule. Notice that this resurrection is something that has happened. And that Jesus' exaltation to glory has happened. Which means that we Christians are members of his kingdom now. You thought you were sitting in your office or your home or your ca- or a cafe or something. But a more significant reality, friends, if you are a Christian, is that you are right now seated with Jesus, the great King, who is the ruler of all creation. You are sitting alongside him. You are in him. You are secure in his heavenly rule over all things. And you know what? Anyone who wants can join us in him. They can. Actually, for a full treatment of that, we're going to look at that in next week. But it is all about trusting Jesus only, trusting Jesus alone for our future. Not anything we do, not anything we achieve, but only what Jesus has done. But now see that Paul focuses the eyes of his readers not on ourselves, but on God's mercy, on God's love, on Jesus, his King. And he continues to do that in verse 7. Why does he seat us with Christ in the heavenly realms? Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in us, in, uh, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God's love and mercy shows his grace, his kindness, which is all about what Jesus did in his death, and particularly here focused on his resurrection and his glory. And friends, we need to hear that. Because sometimes I think that the work of God that saved us, that rescued us from sin, we start to think it's all about us. One of the great benefits of reading the Bible with other people, like I do with some of the folk on the call here, um, and if you want to do it, uh, then I'm very, very happy to do that as well. But one of the great benefits of doing it with another person, just as well as reading the Bible for yourself, is it, it helps us avoid the trap of thinking that the passage is always all about me. The Bible's really all about me. Um, no, the focus of the work of God is on Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, well, in the ages after his death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's, there was an age where it was... B- before the death of Jesus, but in this age, the time prior, or in that in that age, the prior in the time prior to Jesus coming, uh, the time we have recorded in the Old Testament, uh, you could only you could only know that God would one day save, and even know that one day that that rescue would be through Israel, through the Jews. You could know that in the Old Testament age, but that age didn't know how or through whom it might happen. 
But now, friends, since Jesus, we live in an age where that great mystery of how God would rescue all people from sin and death, we know that. We live in the age where we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms at the same time as we're sitting at our desks or at home or on the floor. Even as we're surrounded by people who deny who Jesus is. But there is still coming an age where no one can or no one will deny who Jesus is because every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. But whether it's in this age we're in or the coming one, the objective, the purpose of all of history according to God's plan has now been revealed that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. God's purpose in doing this amazing work is that we, and one day all, will see the extraordinary riches of his grace, so that we would see that the almighty God of all creation is a God who is, verse 4, loving and merciful. And here in verse 7, without compare, when it comes to being one who shows undeserved goodness, that's what grace means, it means being good to people who don't deserve it. God's purpose in being good to us is to demonstrate that he's beyond comparison in being good to people who don't deserve it. What kind of a God do you think God is? Well, if you think that God is angry, you're right, aren't you? He's a God who saw us and our attitude toward him and he's angry, dead and objects of wrath. But if that's where you stop, you don't really know God. Because God, who is rightly angry at our rebellion, our rejection of him, who is entirely just and right in his judgment of us and in declaring our death, is also loving and full of grace and mercy. Because even those, like me and like all of us, who are deserving of death, no matter what our background is, who are objects of his wrath, he deals with according to a love that we don't deserve, a love he decides to place upon us. And how is it that a just God, a God who must punish rebellion, demonstrates his love and his mercy and his grace and his kindness? Well, it's in Jesus, his King. And if we leave this passage thinking it's all about us, then we really haven't read the passage, have we? Because it's all about God and his King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we can leave this passage without giving glory to him, then we have hard hearts, don't we? And I pray, I plead with God that he will soften your heart if it's hard, so that you too will realise quite how great a God he really is, and wonder at him, and seek to live in a way that gives all glory to him, because that is the very best thing in all of history and all of creation that anyone or anything can do. Give glory to God and to Jesus, his King. And aligning ourselves with God's purposes is in, all, in all of history is what we do when we give glory to him. And you see that in this goal of all of history, that all of the divisions of history, all of the things that ever divided people, even the great division that God made between Jew and Gentile, they're now bound together in Jesus, who is the Lord. And how on earth can we even think of ourselves 
or others as being more deserving or less deserving of that grace. We can't go out from here and tell everyone that they're less deserving than us, can we? No, the people you work with are as undeserving as you were. and can be just as included as you and I have been. Friends, how on earth can we not go and tell everyone we know this extraordinary news, that even we who were Gentile and heard no claim on the inheritance of God are now adopted as his children, as full children and co-heirs of his kingdom? Well, friends, that's the end of the session today. Let's take a minute and uh, just consider how that passage can be impacting us as we go through the rest of not just this week, but the rest of our lives.